Remain standing for the reading of the text from Matthew chapter 14 as we begin our message this morning, continuing through this section of Scripture while I go and retrieve my sermon. (laughs) Everything's just falling apart on me this morning. As we come to this passage, we'll note that this is a series of stories within a narrative portion. Remember that Matthew is divided up into narrative and teaching. And here we are in this other narrative. Um, And we'll begin reading at verse 22 down through verse 33 as we consider this next story. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now on the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and began sinking. And he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Our gracious Father, today may we with clearer vision of faith see the glory of the risen Savior, And see that truly He is the Son of God. And bow our knee and praise His name. And may with stronger faith our fears subside. And our worries about life dissipate. Into the glory of Your strong, omnipotent, good hand. Father, we pray that there's anyone here going through a specific trial, a a very intense trial, that this morning you would calm them, that even in the midst of that trial, in the midst of the wind and the waves, they may know your presence, and they may hear your voice saying, come. Lord, we pray that you would calm our fears and that you would give us the peace of God that passeth all understanding and the Spirit would illuminate the text, press it into our lives, weave it into the fabric of our soul, that from it may come peaceable fruits of righteousness that would glorify your name and we might be more fit to enjoy you forever. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Maybe seated. When we go through various trials, the inevitable questions come. Why? Why? 
It's almost like we, we can't help ourselves. It just emerges from the old flesh and it just comes out. We want to know why. Why me? Why this? Why now of all times? Right? We don't even have to think about it. It just spontaneously spews out of our heart. And from the heart are the issues of life. It's out of the heart the mouth speaks. Why? This present passage will help us with some of this matter. It's not going to answer all of the questions of the wise, but it will answer the main one, which really goes right down to the heart of the matter in your spirit. You may remember where we are in the text. This is the Lord's ministry where He begins to withdraw from the crowds and begins ministering, discipling specifically His twelve disciples Now, it doesn't mean that he will not be around crowds any longer, but his shift has changed. His focus and intent now is to begin shaping and forming his disciples. And this is a section of a narrative of stories that we will continue uh, through, which we will see over these series of events that this is exactly what Jesus is doing. This comes right on the the heels of feeding the 5,000, and it says in verse 22, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. Right after he fed them, all the 12 baskets were gathered up, and he looks and he gives them the lesson that they were to learn. And remember that that lesson was primarily for the disciples. Remember when he went and asked Philip, he says, Philip, where are we going to get food? To feed all these people. And he said this already knowing what he was going to do, but he said this to test him. It was the testing of the disciples that was the point here. And as we unpack this very familiar passage before us, we will need to come back here in our mind and in our spirit again and again, and we need to retrace our steps in the storms that Jesus has orchestrated for us to know that in them He is shaping us just like he was then. Jesus leads us in every, every detail of our lives. And we know that already up here in our head, but have we got that down into our hearts? He orchestrates it is in every detail of our lives, right down to the most severe trials that we face in order to work in our spirit, to, to settle our spirit. In him, to settle our restless and fearful spirits in his omnipotent goodness. Because our tendency, is it not, is to, to control things, to think about how to solve the problem, to escape the challenges of life, or to skirt the unpleasant confrontations or the matters that disturb our peace. Our tendency is to overprotect ourselves or to prevent fearful circumstances from ever happening. And all this leads, every bit of that, leads to a contrary spirit of trusting Jesus when He really wants us to rest in Him. And to know from Him these words. I got this. I got this. So the next time 
you're going through a trial and you cry out, Why? Just remember his voice telling you, I got this. Just trust me. I'm doing this to promote your joy. Now from this passage, I would like to just consider six observations that are here. There's more to it. And every time we come back to something like this, there's always more to it. But let me just propose six observations as we uh, unpack some of the passage before us. It's very familiar with us, and so we're going through very familiar territory. But Jesus, I want you to understand, He orchestrated every bit of this life-threatening event in order to strengthen the disciples' faith in Him. Remember this context. And then Jesus says here in verse 22, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. That word made is a very strong word that has the tendency or the sense to compel them to get into the boat. You can imagine a similar scene in your own mind. The evening is upon them. He is sending the people away, and he's compelling the disciples to get into the boat near dark, to go back across the other side of the sea. And the questions begin flying. Lord, why? Lord, why? where are you going? Why, why aren't you coming with us? Why are we traveling at such a late hour? How are you going to get to the other side? When will you meet up with us? When will you join us? What are we to do when we get there? Why do you want us to do this? Why do we have to go? He compelled them. Get into the boat. Disciples. And he sent them away. The day was already far spent. The evening time is upon them. It's probably not quite dark yet, as we see from the context. It appears in a series of events like this that he just fed the 5,000. They gathered up all of the fragments. Evening was upon them, but not quite dark yet. And he begins sending the, the multitudes away while he compels his disciples, ordering their very footsteps to get into the boat. And then evening came upon them. Now, I'm not sure, but you would think that his disciples understood quite a bit, or at least four of them understood quite a bit about this Sea of Galilee and how quickly storms can brew up with the the rising terrain above the sea and the wind and the way that that small lake, really, more than a sea, can become very t- too much, uh, tempestuous and with all of the winds and the way it can come very quickly. And yet here are four fishermen that knew this sea very well. And he compels them to get into the boat. And they would be there well into the night. That night they had about five to eight miles to get across the sea. We find them not only sailing, but they were rowing hard, it says, when the storm came upon them. 
So whether they used the wind or whether they used their oars, they were making the best they could. It's not enough to say that Jesus knew what was going to happen on that night. When trouble comes upon you, it it does not do justice to God to say, well, just God knows. God knows. No, that it is not only that God merely knows these things. He literally compelled my footsteps right into the very trouble that I'm in. Now, that's the truth. The one who has just performed an act of creation and taking five loaves and two fish and before their very eyes and brought them very near to his creative power and taking them and multiplying them to feed 5,000 plus the women and the children and then 12 baskets where each disciple probably had to carry one back so that they would be very mindful of what they were in the presence of. He was about to speak to the weather, which he's done before in their presence, but he was about to speak a life-threatening storm. Very dangerous, and this was all orchestrated by the Lord, down to the very details, including the very severity of the storm and the actual and real dangers that the disciples would face. And it's no different for you and me. Every situation in life is completely orchestrated by the Lord for some specific and purposeful reason in your life. And the next time you face a storm, the next time God takes you through a storm and a test in your your life, you need to learn to retrace your steps. And retrace your steps all the way back to the place where you realize that Jesus led you right into the boat and compelled you there. Now, God has promised that He will never leave you or forsake you. He has promised from old that He will not withhold any good thing from you. He has reiterated over and over again through the Psalms and through the prophets and through the promises of the covenant that all things will work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose, for those who love God. And and as as Paul summarizes this in Romans 8.28, which you're so familiar with, this is just a summary of the things they have continually heard all of their liturgical life. And Jesus is about to send them into the boat. He compels them to go to the other side. He's about to send a very dangerous storm upon the sea. And he is not doing this because he gets a kick out of seeing his people afraid. He's not a practical joker who gets thrills out of using his powers to frighten his people for a laugh. Nor does Jesus ever laugh at his disciples when they become fearful and afraid. But rather, he encourages them, admonishes them, trust me, I got this. And everything in the Christian's life is to develop this unnatural disposition of trust and faith in order to love God so that you can enjoy Him more. 
See, we're born into this world with a natural disposition that is not of faith. It is not a posture of trust in our God and Creator. But man's chief end is to glorify God and to what? Enjoy Him forever. Now that starts not when you die and go to heaven. God wants you to enjoy Him this morning. I don't know your situation. I don't know what trial you may be facing or what worries or concerns are overbearing you right now, but He wants you today, right now, to enjoy Him. That is your chief end. But this disposition of trusting God so that we can glorify Him and enjoy Him has to be developed, it has to be matured, it has to be grown. And God will not cease developing that in us until we are complete. He doesn't merely want us to trust Him when we feel like we have no other choice. He's not just the last rung on the ladder. He's not just the last hope that we have when everything else is gone through it. No, He wants us to trust Him every minute of our lives, and He wants us to enjoy Him every minute of our lives. You remember in the time past when I defined what it really means in essence to fear the God, which is the beginning of wisdom? and To, to fear God is to live in the constant awareness of the presence of God in your life. Living in the constant awareness of the presence of God in your life. That's what it means to fear the Lord. And we have so much to learn in how to enjoy God. There is so much to develop in this spirit of ours. So Jesus compels His disciples to get into the boat and it's evening. Something they would not have done on their own. And then He leaves them. Now, I know he, they would not have done it on their own because the word compel shows that it's pretty strong in what Jesus is persuading them to do. And then he leaves them. Now, don't get that confused with the promise that Jesus says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. While Jesus' physical presence will not be with them in a visible way, He will still be with them. And that's an important lesson for them because it will be at the end of this book that He will in His resurrection, about to go to ascend to the Father, and He says, now all power has been given unto me, now therefore go, and I will be with you always. And then He departs from them. Only physically and visibly, but not intimately, relationally, and spiritually. He was as much in that boat with them as He was on the mountain praying. So Jesus departs from them, leaving them to sail across the sea at night in charge of all the details and everything and the drama that's about to take place. And the Lord leads us also in the storms of life and He orchestrates all those details and He brings them and us into the drama of life very deliberate reason. Now, a second observation we pick up in verse 23. It says, And when he sent the multitude away, he went up onto the mountain by himself 
to pray. And when evening was there, he was alone. He went up to the mountain, he sends them away, and he goes up to the mountain not to rest and fall asleep and to get a little bit of relaxation. No, he goes up into the mountain to pray for them. To pray for them. And he does that for us when he's orchestrating our trials and the difficulties that we must go through. Verse 25 says it was the fourth watch in the night when he finally goes to his disciples. Now you can almost see it. They set out sailing across the sea. They have some eight miles or so to go. Perhaps the wind was not helping them so much and they have to row. And they're out in the middle of this sea and it's three to Four miles, John tells us in John chapter 6, how far they are, right smack out in the middle of it. And they set off before it was dark, and now it's not quite morning. They had been out there all night long. You might recall that the Romans divided the night watches up into four segments of three hours each, beginning at 6 p.m. and ending at 6 a.m. So the first night watch was from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. The second night watch was from 9 p.m. to midnight. The third night watch was from midnight to 3 a.m. And this was the fourth watch of the night from somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. And the Lord waited. He watched and he prayed. The Lord had been praying all night for his disciples. It wasn't the first time he had prayed all night for his disciples. During some part of that prayer, a storm blew up on the sea while his disciples were in the boat. Don't think that that was just coincidental. Hey, Father. It's now time. The winds begin to roar and the waves begin to grow and the boat began to be tossed. This was not the first time this has happened with his disciples. Remember the first time he was in the boat with his disciples? But he was asleep and they come and they wake him. Lord, do you not care that we are perishing? And he wakes up and he says, why are you so fearful? Peace be still. And the whole thing was calm. And we're supposed to learn from these lessons and we're supposed to recognize and register them in our trust archive so that we can go back and retrace the steps and realize who this man is and who God is among us. We are to remember the name of the Lord our God. When we are faced with armies, with chariots and swords and horses coming against us and we're far outnumbered, some will trust in those things, but not us. We must remember the name of the Lord our God and bring Him into our present experience. When the word remember is used, most often it is causing us to bring to our minds something of the past, but bringing that of the past into our very present experience. Remember the Sabbath day. 
bringing in of the past, of what God did at creation, what God did at redemption, and bringing it right into our very present experience. Remember the name of the Lord our God. Bring, remember what He has done for you in the past and bring Him right into your very present experience. Remember, remember. This do in remembrance of me. Remember. We're so forgetful, but it's not just a mind thing he's asking us to do here. It includes our mind. It includes a repentance of our mind. It includes a change of our mind. But it's bringing back and recalling to mind and then placing our trust in the very thing so that today, right now, in this present circumstance, I'm walking in the light of that truth that I am remembering. See, they've been through this before. And they should not have been afraid this time. Should not have been. That's the point he is trying to train in their spirit. And he can only do that through the crucible of experience. Oh, you didn't get it the first time. Let's see if you're going to get it the second time. Well, if you can't get it the second time, you'll get it a little better the third time and a little more the fourth time. And and he will continue to train his disciples and he will train us in the crucible of experience so that each time we are changing from glory unto glory into his likeness. Why? So we can enjoy him. Enjoy him. I want you to consider a few things about Jesus and how he prays for his people. We we don't know what he exactly prayed for on this particular request or this particular occasion, but we do know from other passages of Scripture what and how he prays for his people. In fact, it says in Hebrews 7.25, I think it even has reiterated the same thing, basically in Romans 8, somewhere around verse, I don't know, it's in Romans 8. End of, end of chapter 8. But it's basically saying the same thing that Hebrews 7.25 says. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives. Always is living, praying for you. We call this the session of Christ. The session of Christ is not his plurality of elders in the local church. It is the work that he is continuing to do for you at the Father's right hand and interceding for you at the Father's right hand, and his prayers are efficacious. He ever lives to intercede for you, to pray for you, and his intercessory prayers are efficacious to save you to the uttermost through every trial, through Every physical trial, both physical and spiritual, he saves you to the completeness with every little detail accounted for, to the uttermost, not a single thing left undone. And Jesus is never distant from our situation, and he's never distant from us, ever. He is ever living for you. He is ever praying for you. After all, he he went looking for you when you were not looking for him. 
You did not love him first, but he loved you. And only because he loved you can you love him. You did not choose him. He chose you. He went looking for you. And if he went looking for you and he found you, do you not think that he knows where you are and what you're doing and what you're going through? He orchestrates it all. And he's praying for you. He always is praying for you. What kind of things does he pray? Just a few examples here will help us to know. Remember when he is encouraging Peter And he says, Peter, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. That's a good prayer request. Lord, keep my faith from failing. And he does. He prays for that. John 17 is a wonderful high priestly prayer. And there are several things that we can glean from that of what he prays for. He prays that the Father will keep his people in his name. He prays in the verse 13 that God's people's joy would be full. I pray that their joy may be fulfilled, he says. I pray, Father, that you keep them from the evil one. I pray that you would sanctify them in the truth. I pray that they may be one and experience the glory of God that you have given to the Son. That's what I want for my people. He's constantly praying. He prays for your faith. He prays for your joy. He prays for your oneness. He prays for your happiness. But there is a means to an end. And that's what these trials are all about. A third observation is given in verses 24 and 27 through that passage there. And he makes himself known to his disciples in the very midst of the storm. The boat was now in the middle of the sea, verse 24, is tossed about by the waves, and the wind was contrary. It was about the fourth watch of the night, between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning, just before sunrise, perhaps, maybe all night long. They had been toiling. Time had been going by. The, the fear had been mounting. The struggle with the wind and the waves were there. And then all of a sudden, quite unexpectedly, Jesus comes walking on the water. And to add fear to fright, they say, oh, it's a ghost. And Jesus immediately spoke to him, be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. Not only are his disciples struggling in the middle of the sea, some three to four miles out in the middle, the storm overtook them, and now Jesus appears to them. They think it's a ghost. Now, you don't make much of that. But they were in their immature state of some form or another. That's what they believed. And yet, how many times do we draw erroneous conclusions that make the situation appear worse than it really is, and the very thing they feared was the very solution to their problems? It was Jesus. And he responds to their cry with this statement, Be of good cheer. It is I. The word be of good cheer is a phrase which 
It means to take courage. Take courage. There were three other times that particular passage was used in the Gospels. Let me just, by way of summary, reiterate those times because I think it's relevant and very applicable. The first of those occasions was the Matthew chapter 9. Remember when they brought in a paralytic and they let him down through so that his friends let the paralytic through so he could be healed. And he looks and says to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. The second time was later in that same passage when a woman with an issue of blood came up behind him and touched the hem of his garment thinking, if I could just touch him, I will be healed. And he turns around and when he saw her, he said, and she was frightened, he said, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. And the fourth time given to us in the Gospel of of John in the upper room discourse in John 16, he says, as he begins to conclude that discourse, he says, now these things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulations, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And those are the four four times that that phrase is used, that our Lord uses it. Now, in your fearfulness, if your fearfulness is due to some iniquity of yours, be of good cheer. Is your fearfulness due to some problem outside of your control? Then hear Jesus say, Be of good cheer. Is your fearfulness due to some challenge that you experience in this evil world? Be of good cheer. Or is your fearfulness due to God's leading you right into a storm of life? And there, he says, be of good cheer. All four scenarios, he tells you to take courage, be of good cheer. God is near. And Jesus wants you to hear those words. He wants you in the next time that you're faced in a trial or a situation to retrace your steps right into the boat, right out into the sea. And when you're at the most fearful place, he wants you to hear, be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. Well, another observation comes on the heels of this. Only Matthew records it. It is so Petrine. And I love it. They're right out there in the middle, and the Lord's talking to them. They're frightened. And with his impetuous spirit, Peter, in verse 28, gets to do the impossible in the midst of all of this. Now, isn't that something? 
when all of a sudden you get a glimpse of something and the glory of God that you don't even think about it and you call out to do the impossible and God allows it. And that's what happened. I actually find this a bit humorous in some ways. You can just see the scenario out there. It's dark. There's a shadow. Not everything is very clear. The, what is certain is that the winds are against them. The waves are boisterous and they're fearful. And now Jesus approaches. They're all the more fearful and they just hear him. And they just heard this. And Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Well, what if it wasn't? <laughs> well, that's not really what Peter was thinking at the moment. I don't think that was an option. I don't think that's how we need to take it. you got to love this guy, though, this Peter. I believe Peter here is showing evidence of a stronger faith than he did when he was shaking the Lord out of the stupor in his sleep when he was in the boat before. I think he's a little stronger. He's asking him something about the impossible. He sees the impossible. He is seeing something that for the first time in human history has ever been done. Axe heads have floated before, but no one has walked on the water. And here is Jesus walking on the water. And Peter asking, Lord, I want to do that too. And so he asked him. He asked God to do the impossible. And Jesus grants it. Now, if you ever ask God to do the impossible, and He grants it to you, you must be willing to follow through on your request. So Peter gets out the boat, and he starts doing the impossible. He walks on the water. The second person ever in history to ever walk on the water and the two last people ever known to have ever done it is going on right there in the midst of the storm. Now understand, the storm is still raging. The waves are still billowing. The, the wind is still blowing. The circumstances were exactly the same as they were just minutes earlier. And what you fear in the case... Nothing may not change. But the power of God is at work. And you see it. And God's power is in the same circumstance as before, but God's power is now the factor that changes your perspective, that changes the entirety of how you respond to that circumstance. And if God's hand and power are with you, He will keep you from falling or sinking. Now here's a fifth observation. Peter does begin to sink when he doubts. You think about that. Verse 30, but when he saw that the wind was boisterous, well, it was before. The wind hadn't changed. When he saw it, he was afraid, and he began to sink and cry out, saying, Lord, save me. Now, I think if you think about this for just a moment, 
some reason, he gets fixed now on the wind and the waves. Now, the wind and the waves were the same in the boat as it was outside the boat. But what he failed to remember is he's doing the impossible, whether there were wind and waves or a calm and quiet. The wind and the waves were a distraction. And there's so many things in our life that distracts us. That distracts us from the trust. That, that shifts our focus, even but for a second. As long as Peter was fixed on Jesus, he was walking successfully. But as soon as he was distracted by the storm, he feared distracted his faith in everything that his faith was overcoming. Now doubt in that began to make him sink. Now everything I feared before, it's all still there. The wind and the waves, it's all still there. They're all still the same. And in faith, he's doing the impossible. He's doing what he asked to do. And Jesus grants him the impossible. But then Peter starts thinking about it. The problem with Peter is sometimes he just didn't think. And then the problem with Peter is sometimes he just did think. <laughs> it was all contrary, however, to faith. He started thinking about it. He started taking in all around him and circumstances. And he began to, to take it all in. And his faith just quickly dissipated. And he began to sink. And you know what? The Lord, the Lord allowed him to really sink. He started to sink. He really started to go under. And the Lord was right there. And he, he allowed it. I'm saying, you, you ask for the impossible and God grants it. Be willing. To follow through. Are you going to have to follow him in faith? Peter did, the, did what the rest of us should do at that very moment. He cried out to the Lord, Lord, save me. And when you are in a panic and stricken with fear, that's exactly what the Lord wants you to do. He wants you to call out to him. Cry out to him. You may be suffering with something today and going through a great trial and you don't know how you're going to get out of this, go home this afternoon and get on your knees and cry out to Him. That's what you should do. But as soon as He did, the Lord took hold of Him and He saved Him. Now, verse 31, the Lord told Him what happened. He gives commentary to it. it that's helpful for us to know because that's part of the point of this entire trial. He says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter, you were doing the impossible. You were walking on the water. Whether it be quiet and calm or wind and waves. Why did you doubt? It was that doubt that caused you to sink. And how many times we start a good thing with the Lord and a little time goes by and we start thinking about our surroundings. We really start thinking about the implications of what it is we're doing and what God has granted us and we begin to doubt and we begin to fail. 
We've got to trust God all the way through life. And we've got to trust Him all the way through the situations. We've got to trust Him. And we don't, we, can't, we don't have time to just stop and start taking it in and digesting it in a way that is contrary to what we have asked God to do, contrary to what He has granted us, contrary to what we have prayed for, and contrary to what He is accomplishing. We are to walk by faith and not by sight. And the the last observation I want you to to see here is in verse 32. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And then those who were in the boat came and worshipped Him and says, Truly, this is the Son of God. The storm was over in an instant. They just went over, Peter and Jesus, they got back into the boat. As soon as they got back in, it was over. Gone. Why? Because the trial was finished. There was no need to prolong it. Jesus calms the storm when he is finished with his lesson. The point was made. The lesson is over. No reason for the storm to continue. It's not that God is trying to drag things out for future and and prolonged drama. The Lord led and carried them all the way through this trial, and now it's over. And you need to realize when the Lord is finished with the lesson, He will calm the storm. And I assure you, the storm will come to an end. But this time the disciples have grown. They've grown from the first time. They say of Him what they did not say of Him the first time they went through the storm and He calmed the wind and the waves. Even when He spoke to them, they now say truly, You are the Son of God. And Jesus is always near. He is always always responsive to your cry. He is ever living to make intercession and to pray for you. There's not a time that goes by that He's not praying for you. His people, for whom He died, who He chose, that He gave His blood for, that He rose for, and now He prays for. And He compels your feet to get into a boat when perhaps that was not your choice or your direction. But He compels them nonetheless to go into a storm that you would not have chosen so that you may grow to understand there really is no need to fear because Jesus, the Son of God, the Creator, is always with you and is always near. He is praying for you. He is saving you to the uttermost. And He wants you to enjoy God. He wants you to enjoy life. And you have so many worries and you have so many fears to overcome in order to do that well. And every one of us have them. And He's going to help you along through this. By discipling you with trials 
sometimes life-threatening trials. So you will overcome the very things that causes you to doubt Him. God does not want you to doubt. He does not want you to fear. And He does not want you to be frustrated. He wants you to enjoy Him. And when you're going through a trial, you need to trace every step back to where that place was. That Jesus compelled you to get into the boat. And realize He's in control. He's orchestrated this for you. And that is working to help you enjoy life. All the more. To enjoy God. To glorify God. And enjoy Him forever. Let's pray. Our Father, how thankful we are that You care for us more than we care for ourselves. You know our end from the beginning. You know what we want in life. We want happiness and joy. We want peace. And yet You have promised this in the Savior. No matter what the circumstances and the outward situation may be, You grant us even to do the impossible. How thankful we are for a great God who gives us everything we need for life and for godliness so that we might grow and learn to enjoy You more. We confess that our appetites are not what they should. We confess that we don't love You like we should. We don't trust You like we should. We wrestle with situations in life because we do so in our flesh. We do not bring them to You in prayer as we should. We don't cry out to You enough. And even in the good times, we tend to forget You. Lord, forgive us of these sins and cause us this day to remember the Lord our God. Knowing that You are working and praying That you are orchestrating every detail in our lives so that there is truly no good thing that you withhold from us. And the greatest joy that you want us to know is the joy of knowing you as our great God and Creator. And what that means as we fellowship and we relate to you every moment of our lives. Constantly living in that comforting knowledge of the presence of God. And Lord, we ask that You would strengthen our faith to keep our eyes and our hearts fixed upon Jesus, even in the midst of a storm. But knowing that the storm will soon pass and there will be a calm when the lesson is learned. To strengthen our faith this day. And may we leave from here stronger than when we came. Less fearful. Less worried about the difficulties of life. And the tribulations that this world may bring. Because be of good cheer we hear our Lord say. He has overcome the world. And we pray this in His strong name.
Amen.